Uh, all right, man, as you guys take a seat, as you finish grabbing your cup of coffee, man, just want to say good morning and welcome. How are you guys doing? Good. Everybody cool? Yeah, awesome. So my name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I got a couple of quick uh, announcements slash updates before we jump into our time. Uh, Number one, if you're new, if you've been joining us for the past couple of weeks on the chairs, there are these things called Connect cards. Connect is written uh, very big on that card. Uh, Man, if you'd love to hang out, please fill one out. Drop it in the offering basket. We would love to hang out with you. Uh, So make sure you fill those out before our time ends today. Uh, Number two, um, if you follow us on social media or have done uh, any, uh, excuse me, not done anything, but you've uh, you've downloaded like our app. Uh, On our app, we have uh, our sermon notes, the sermon audio, the sermon video. We've been a little behind on that. One of the things that is updated, however, are the sermon notes. So if you've been following along or you are one of those individuals that follows along according to the notes and writes notes of your own, sermon notes are updated. Audio and video will be updated later this week. Thank you so much for your patience. Uh, With that being said, I think those are all the updates that I have for you this morning. Um, I think I've said welcome. I'll say it again. uh, Hi. Um, we're going to dive into Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 this morning. And uh, while you go ahead and open or load your Bible, um, let me just rant a little bit as we, uh, as we prepare for our time. Um, so we have been in this sermon series titled uh, The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes really is uh, this chunk of Scripture taken out from Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes serve as the first 12 verses of chapter 5. And so we've been going through each Beatitude one at a time over the course of our time this summer. Uh, We're actually going to be finishing up this series next week. Excuse me. We're going to finish up this series next week. I'll tell you more about that later on as we dive into announcements and stuff like that. But we'll be finishing up the Beatitudes next week. It's been a beautiful study. I've really enjoyed my time in the Beatitudes. I hope you have as well. I know many of you have done either like uh, Bible studies concerning the Beatitudes or have even raised a bunch of questions concerning some of the things that we've walked through. So I pray that that has blessed you. Um, In addition to that, as we've walked through these, these statements made by Jesus, one of the things that Izzy actually prayed about earlier today during during our time in worship, uh, is something that I'd like to reiterate, and that is the fact that the Beatitudes don't necessarily come naturally. All these things that Jesus talks about, beginning in verse 1 through 3, and where we find ourselves now and where we'll find ourselves next week, all of these things don't necessarily come, actually don't at all come naturally to us. Additionally, each one of these Beatitudes is for all Christians. I think oftentimes when we look at the Beatitudes, we are often faced with statements of morality. And so we will look at them in, uh, we will look at them with our intellect. We will look at them through what we consider to be our success and our achievements rather than what God is ultimately challenging us in. 
Um, and so, so they don't come naturally to us, but they are for us. And in addition to that, they are to be characteristics that each one of us as Christians displays or reflects in our life. It is not one of those things that, man, you either got this, a little bit of that, but you don't have a little bit of that. Uh, we are to have Each one of us are to have all of these characteristics. We might have them to varying degrees, but nevertheless, we are to reflect all of these characteristics. As such, we cannot say that we are poor in spirit, but we are not peacemakers. We cannot say that, man, I am merciful. I am simply not meek. All of these characteristics that we've unpacked in light of what Jesus says in Matthew 5 are to be characteristics that we all reflect. So that's my brief rant, or at least I thought it was brief. Nevertheless, we're going to dive into verse 9. I'll go ahead and read that, and then I'll pray for our time. And then I'm going to dive into an introduction, and it's a brief recap of our time from last week, but it ties in to where we're headed this week. Here we go. This is verse 9. And Jesus said, "Blessed uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you for this time. Um, it, as, as man, you've allowed us to gather and worship you in song, uh, through your preached word, through, through prayer and through prayer. God, I pray that this time would be fruitful for us. I ask Holy Spirit that you would be present among us so that you would convict us of our sin, so that we would be compelled to repent and turn away, ultimately placing our trust in you, ultimately fixing our eyes upon Jesus. God, I ask that you would set me aside and that this would be your Holy Spirit speaking through me, that I am merely a vessel, Um, and that it would be your Holy Spirit speaking, preaching, and convicting through your word. God, we thank you for this time, and I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would be at work in their hearts um, and uh, transforming their hearts. And lastly, Lord, I also pray for our, our missions team. They touched down in Guatemala yesterday. Pray that you would be with them as they serve in the local church this morning. Pray that you would be with them throughout their week as they not only minister to the local community, but also help teach a bunch of different classes in the local church setting. Uh, Father, I pray that their time would also be uh, fruitful uh, and, and and a great time of worship toward you. We pray for their travels as they head back at the end of the week. Uh, and we look forward to all the things that you've done in and through them uh, while, they were, while they were away. God, again, we thank you for this moment or this time. It's in your uh, son's name that we pray. Amen. All right, here we go. Now, uh, as I was studying uh, the, the peacemakers, or as I, was, yeah, as I was studying what it means to be a peacemaker, um, one of the things that I quickly realized was that there's going to be a lot of content. And so if you like to take notes, man, I think this is one of those sermons for you. If you don't like to take notes, I hope you can just follow along. Um, I'll do my best to keep on track with all the things that we're going to unpack. 
But before we get to what a peacemaker is, we need to quickly and briefly review our time from last week, because as I said earlier, it ties directly into where we're headed this morning. And so by way of introduction, last week we talked about the condition of the heart, that apart from Jesus, our hearts are wicked, they are deceptive, and they are idolatrous. In fact, the heart is a revelation of man. In other words, the heart reveals our character and it reveals our personality. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus says that it isn't what goes into a person that defiles them, but it's what comes out of the person that defiles them. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Elsewhere, we see that out of the heart flow the springs of life. So the heart is central to the Christian faith. And what we come to learn in Scripture is that anything apart from a new heart is behavior modification. Uh, I'd like to pause there briefly. When we've walked through each one of these Beatitudes, all of them start with the same word, blessed. And a couple of weeks ago, when we opened up this series, I unpacked that word. That in its simplest translation, it means happy or happiness, right? But we also learned, we also learned that according to Scripture, when Jesus is talking about happiness, it's not something that is contingent upon our circumstances, but a lifestyle, Furthermore, uh, we learned that happiness, or what is considered spiritual spending, is a $10 billion industry. Everyone is looking for happiness, and no one seems to know exactly what it is or how to best define it. That people look for happiness in everything from hobbies to uh, uh, yoga, from uh, <clears throat> excuse me, from from happy, excuse me, from hobbies to to yoga, from self help all the way to uh, inner revelation. Happiness or spiritual spending is a ten billion dollar industry. And so it seems like everyone is more concerned with, man, just tell me what happiness is so that I can surround myself around what that is rather than actually changing inside. And so it takes us back to what I mentioned earlier, that anything apart from a new heart is behavior modification, Scripture teaches that we can be physically alive, but spiritually dead. The good news out of all of this is that Christ died on the cross not only, not only to save sinners, but to give them a spiritual heart transplant. That is the good news of the gospel, that Christ not only died for sinners, but died so that they would be given new hearts. And so that leads us a little bit into our time. And the reason I wanted to recap a little bit of our heart is because when we recognize the condition of our heart, we are better we better understand, let me say it that way, we better understand our why behind our problem. See, our problem 
boils down to a three-letter word. Our problem boils down to sin. That's what inevitably we, we, we had. It boils down to sin. And so we, knew, we need to look at our problem in light of creation, the fall, and grace. And I'm giving you just kind of this brief overview. If you'd like to look at this more in depth, I suggest reading Genesis 1 through 3. <clears throat> but as we better understand the why behind our problem, that is sin, we first begin with creation. And that is that we are created in the image of God to reflect his glory and to worship him, to enjoy him forever. However, each one of us has shattered that image because of sin. Each one of us has done that. Wayne Grudem defines sin as uh, failing to conform to the law of God in act attitude, and nature. Anything contrary to his character is contrary to God himself. You see, it is because of sin, we are not only broken, we're judged. We are not only wrong, we're ruined. Sin brings separation from God. And if you do not belong to Jesus, Scripture tells us that you are actually enemies, yet you are at war with God. Each one of us has been in that position. That not only does sin shatter the image and relationship we have with God, it inevitably separates us from Him. It places us at war with Him. R.C. Sproul defines sin as cosmic treason. Sin separates us from God. Sin places us at war with him. And I think if we stop there, we would all be guilted. Man, we're just horrible and we have no idea what to do. But the beauty of the story of redemption is that it does not end there. That it continues, that there is creation and then we fell. But as we fell or after we fell, there was grace. There was grace. And when we look at what grace is or what grace does, we see that God initiates not only conversation, but salvation. He initiates salvation. He initiates salvation by covering our sin, by making us new, and restoring us to himself. Now let me park there for a little bit and give you this brief overview of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we sinned, right? Adam and Eve fell. God comes, starts this conversation with Adam. Adam and Eve are ashamed because they are naked, and so they tried uh, covering themselves up. They tried covering up what they've done. So in that, God has this conversation with them. He curses them. He curses the serpent. But shortly after, there's just one verse. It's one quick. I think it's verse 17. I could be wrong. It's this one verse where we see God kill an animal and he takes the animal's skins and places them on Adam and Eve. 
What does that tell us? That tells us that God is the one who initiates salvation with them, that He is the one that covers them. They couldn't do it themselves. Just like you and I try to cover ourselves up, it's inevitably going to fail. And so He covers them with the loins of another animal, that He is the one that performed a sacrifice. The sacrifice was coming. His name is Jesus, that He ultimately became the ultimate sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice. It is God who covers us. And upon covering them, He made them new and restored them to Himself. That that image is being restored. That if you belong to Jesus, when the Father looks down, He doesn't see you, He sees Jesus in you. That image is ultimately being restored. And because of his sovereign work, we receive peace. We've kind of undergone, we've looked at what sin does, how it separates us. We haven't even talked about how it affects us and others, but we can already safely assume what that looks like. And because of his sovereign work, we receive peace. And that was this giant introduction to ultimately look at, okay, so then what is is a peacemaker? So we need to look at a couple of things. The first thing we need to look at is what a peacemaker is not. I'm going to take a swig of coffee. I hope you guys join me. No? I promise it's coffee. Uh, (laughs) Okay, I think that was bad. Anyway, here we go. What a peacemaker is not. Here are two things a peacemaker is not. And the reason I want to start here, well, let me just go into it. What a peacemaker is not is someone who's passive or easily appeased. The reason I start there is because whether it's a verse like this or the culture of Christianity or the culture of the church, people will assume and believe that because you are a Christian, you are to be passive, right? That you are to be passive, that people walk all over you, that you just kind of let things happen. That is not what a peacemaker is. They are not passive and they're not easily appeased. If someone is passive and easily appeased, what that teaches us is that they lack conviction. Now, that might be you, that you lack conviction. Now, we get conviction, we learn about conviction, and we hold fast to our convictions as seen from the Word of God. So if you lack conviction and you find yourself being passive and or easily appeased, I would encourage you to open your Bible, to find conviction in light of God revealing himself to you through his word. So that's what a peacemaker is not. Let's look at what a peacemaker is. Peacemaker, I got four things. I got a lot of these. So that's why I said, if you're a note taker, sus. Okay, here we go. Here's what a peacemaker is. Forgiven. That's number one. A peacemaker is someone who is 
or has been forgiven. In order to be truly forgiven, we must be repentant. So maybe that's what I should have put. But in order to be truly forgiven, we must be first repentant. That is, acknowledging our position before God, taking our eyes off of our sin, changing our mind, and fixing our eyes on Jesus. Placing our faith, placing our trust in Jesus. So forgiven is one. Number two, that we are no longer at war. A peacemaker understands that they are no longer at war with God. That it is through the person and work of Jesus and Him calling you to Himself, restoring you back to Himself, you are no longer at war with God. Does that mean you are going to fail? Yes. And what covers you is the grace God has given you through the death of His Son, Jesus, because He has already paid that debt on your behalf. He's paid it. So it is someone who recognizes that they are no longer at war. And these are all progressions. Now, because they understand that they are no longer at war, their status is immediately changed. Immediately. In other words, we go from being enemies of God to friends of God. We went from being orphaned to adopted. Our status is immediately changed. And finally, and we'll talk more about this one later on, they actively pursue peace. Here's one thing that I would say about that, and you can put it in the back of your mind, that a peacemaker, someone who actively pursues peace, what that means is that they insert themselves into the mess of one another's lives for the purpose of seeing Jesus doing a work. That's hard. That's really hard. And we'll talk more about that later. Those are four things a peacemaker is forgiven, no longer at war, their status has been changed, and now because of what God has done, they actively pursue peace. The next thing is how one becomes a peacemaker. Oh, I don't remember it being that long, but anyway. (laughs) It's okay, guys. It's my fault. How one becomes a peacemaker. Now, I'll break this down. It's still that long, but it's not that long. How one becomes a peacemaker. Number one is confession. So don't think you have to do all of these things. It's, there are subpoints to the points. I'm just, whatever. Okay, I just want to make that clear. I don't want you to feel like Christianity is horrible. <laughs> right, okay, here we go. How one becomes a peacemaker. Number one, confession. Now, the reason I want to park in confession, confession, and you'll see why, the reason I want to park in confession is because just like the word or the term peacemaker gets easily thrown around in Christian circles and we can easily assume that it is someone who is passive or someone who is easily appeased, the word confession also gets thrown around easily in church circles or in the local or the, the global church. The word confession ultimately sometimes is described as, yeah, just putting your sins out there and that's kind of it. But never really doing anything about it. But there is this heavier meaning to what confession actually is. And so that's what I'd like to jump into briefly. 
Confession consists of four things. Now, these aren't necessarily four steps that you go through, but I would encourage you to kind of mull over these things. The first one that confession is, is agreement. In confession, we come to this agreement on the charges that have been brought up against us. What do you mean the charges? I mean, the sin that we have committed comes brought before us and we actually agree with that uh, charge. We agree with what's in front of us. The second thing is, because we agree with the sin or the charges that have been brought before us, we should, at that moment, be quick to understand that we are unworthy of any means of grace and of any mercy. Because we have realized, we have come to realize or recognize that at that moment, not only do we agree with our sin, we have seen what our sin has done to us and to others. How it has affected us and our relationships. Therefore, we are unworthy. And as we are unworthy, or as we recognize that we are unworthy, we recognize our hatred for sin. In those moments of confession, we should be growing to hate our sin because of the result of sin, because of the effect it has on us, because of the separation we have with God, because of the way we have affected our relationships. There is separation, there is distance, there is betrayal. We should hate our sin. And finally, at that moment, we learn that grace is our only hope. Grace is our only hope. A grace that is freely given, but one that we do not earn and do not deserve. But it is freely given. That is what confession is. It's not simply sitting down and shouting out a couple of words and hope I'm forgiven, walk away. There is depth to confession because we recognize what we have done. We recognize what our sin has done. And ultimately, grace is our only hope. A grace freely given through the person and work of Jesus. So that's number one. How one becomes a peacemaker, confession. Number two, repentance. Repentance, right? That in what's going on in confession, we take our eyes off of our sin. To repent means to change your mind. It means to change the direction that you're headed and to place your faith and trust in Jesus and Him alone. That is what repentance means. Additionally, in repentance, we recognize that Sin is a big deal. Oftentimes, we look at sin from a pure moral standpoint. We look at sin in terms of degrees. Well, I wasn't that bad, and at least I didn't do this. I could have been worse. That could have been even worse, whatever your thing is. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God hates sin sin, not varying degrees. The only variety that you get is in your consequence. That's it. Okay? And so in repentance, we recognize, man, 
how far we've been separated. So I'm changing directions. I'm changing my mind. I'm taking my eyes off of my sin and fixing them upon Jesus. And finally, the third thing, confession, repentance, is surrender. You surrender. You are emptied of your pride. You are emptied of everything else. This, This is what it means to be poor in spirit, to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, to recognize your total depravity. This is what it means to ultimately surrender. So how one becomes a peacemaker, confession, repentance, and surrendering. Surrendering before Almighty God. That's how one becomes a peacemaker. Let's look at how one maintains peace. See, I told you, it's a big breakdown. How one maintains, my wife's laughing at me. How one maintains peace. I don't remember how many bullet points are there. Hey, you fixed them. Thanks, guys. How one maintains peace. Faith, community, and grace. I won't spend a lot of time here. In order for you and I to maintain peace, not just with one another, but as we pursue it, right? That's one of the things that a peacemaker does. They actively pursue peace. Another, uh, uh, one of the ways or the ways in which we maintain it and pursue it is number one, by faith. Faith isn't blind. It's not wishful thinking. It's not stepping out into the abyss, right? The beauty of faith is that it's rooted in truth. That is God's word. Number two, It's rooted upon agreement, agreeing on God's word. And then finally, number three, it's acting upon what we agree on. It's acting upon God's word. That is what faith is, right? By definition, that is faith. It is what truth is, it is agreeing on that truth, and then it is acting upon that truth. And if we are acting upon that truth that is God's word, then we're not stepping out into an abyss. We're not wishfully thinking. We're not jumping out into some blind, uh, we're not being uh, guided blindly, in other words. That's what faith is. Now, why is that important? Because it is God's word that's ultimately going to convict us and compel us to move forward. Therefore, we need to trust in God's word. We need to trust in his promises if we're going to be actively pursuing peace. Number two, community. Man, in community, you theoretically, ideally, hang out with a bunch of other peacemakers. And so what happens? Each one of you or each one of us should be uh, encouraging one another. We should be exhorting one another. We should be challenging one another. Proverbs says that iron sharpens iron. That means sometimes there is friction. Get over it, right? There is going to be friction. Some of you, man, aren't so down for community. That's not really my thing. That's, you know, something that's for the church. Homie, you're, for the, you're, you're a part of it. You are a part of the church should you say you belong to Jesus. So community is number two. Number three, grace toward others. Now, what's, what's big about grace toward others is that it doesn't just encompass believers. This encompass even uh, includes non-Christians. And our grace toward them. That is, if you are a peacemaker, you should have, as we've talked about in previous weeks, you should have an understanding of 
grace. Grace in others' offenses toward you. Grace in their shortcomings. Because we understand, man, what we do. We understand when we fall short. We should be gracious toward others. Now, being gracious toward others doesn't mean hard conversations don't happen. It does not mean things go unaddressed. But it does mean that your motivation behind those conversations or your forgiveness or the relationship is fueled by grace. So stop making excuses. The excuse or the reality of your excuse is that your motivation isn't by grace. And so that's where we need to find ourselves. We need to be gracious toward others. Strife and contention hinder the growth of grace. That is Thomas Watson. I'll say it again. Strife and contention hinder the growth of grace. So we've looked at a couple of things. We've looked at what a peacemaker is not and what a peacemaker is and within that how to become one and how to maintain peace. Now let's get a little more practical. So what does a peacemaker do? I get it. I understand what a peacemaker is, what they're not. I understand how you are to become one, but those are all really nice uh, Christianese words. What do I actually need to do? As a peacemaker, what is it that I do? Here are three things not in the order that is going to show up here. The first one is you were to think biblically. That would be number one. And I know it's different up there. Sorry. Anyway, think biblically. That is number one. What does that mean? Man, it means a couple of things. It means that you find yourself in God's word, that you know in God's word there is truth and that God ultimately reveals himself through it that you find yourself in God's word. What it also means is that at times you're neutral, not because you don't have an argument, but because it's not about being right or wrong. It's about being reconciled. That means you're looking at everything through the lens of the gospel. But in order to do that, you must think biblically. And in order to think biblically, you must find yourself in God's word. When people ask, man, I just want to hear from God, is your Bible open? I would begin there at least. Think biblically. I think sometimes we think culturally first. We need to think biblically. Number two, speak appropriately. And sometimes that means not speaking at all. I'll say that one more time. Sometimes that means not speaking at all. Some of you might have that attitude. You're like, man, well, I'm just telling them because it's truth. Didn't, what? You just dismissed everything, right? Or I'm gonna, man, I'm just gonna tell them because that's just who I am. Then you need a new heart, okay? Now, the beauty of the, the, the Beatitudes, as we've talked over the past couple of weeks is, I don't know your circumstance. I don't know what's going on. All of these are dealing with you as the individual. So if you're immediately, especially when we get into the practical side of things, if you're immediately thinking about your circumstance and how I don't understand, you are right. I would agree with you there. I don't understand because I don't know. That does not exclude 
speaking appropriately, and sometimes that meaning not speaking at all. James chapter 1 says that we are to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Sometimes some of us are uh, quick to speak and uh, slow to listen or not listen at all or listen to what I want or I think I know what you're going to say so I'm just going to talk over you. Right? And you say, that's my spiritual gift. It is not. It is not. (laughs) Let me just... I'm going to put it on the table, right? We're going to address it because we know that's true. And I don't, man, here's the thing. Speak appropriately. Sometimes that means, yeah, sometimes it means you're going to have a, a, a tough word. I get that. That's going to happen. We can't not have that. Sometimes it means you're going to have a tough word. doesn't mean you need to be a jerk about it. That's number one, right? I mean, we can, actually, we can go on and on about that. You can have a tough word. Sometimes it means not saying anything at all. It means listening, right? Sometimes we don't want to listen, and we have a variety of reasons as to why we don't want to listen. For the jokes that I just gave, or maybe you're an external processor, and that's the only way it works, be still and just listen. Sometimes you need to just listen, right? I will tell you this from my own personal uh, standpoint. My wife knows I am an internal processor, right? I process things, man, internally and in solitude. And so, um, like, I don't really talk about what I'm thinking about, but then when idea, like, when people will interject, like, what I'm supposed to be thinking, I, I start to stress out, right? That's, that's just me. Everyone is a little different, right? Speak appropriately. Learn to listen. And when it's green and you need to speak, then speak. Speak graciously. Speak biblically. Speak with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Don't just put it on the table because that's just the way you are. No. And then number three, and it really encompasses these two, pursue peace. One of the things I had mentioned earlier about pursuing peace is because of what Jesus has done, we then insert ourselves into the mess of one another's lives. That's really hard. That's really hard because inserting ourselves into one another's life is going to be difficult because you're going to see things in my life that you don't want to see or that are going to frustrate you. And I'm going to see things in your life that I don't necessarily like or that are ultimately going to frustrate me. The motivation behind those things just should be grace, a grace that is freely given to us because of the peace we have received through Jesus on the cross. It's going to be tough and it's going to be difficult and sometimes inconvenient. But I don't see any of that, or at the very least, inconvenience. I don't see that in the character of Jesus when he inserts himself into the mess of our lives. In the first chapter of John, it says that he dwelled among us. In the easiest way of translation, that means he moved in. He moved in and was among everybody. It was among the mess of everyone else. It's going to be hard sometimes. And pursuing peace is something that we actively do. It means that we go to great lengths to pursue peace because Jesus is not just Savior, but the central part of our lives. The gospel is ultimately what's at stake. So that's what a peacemaker does. They think biblically, they speak appropriately, and they pursue 
peace. And finally, those are all the things related to peacemaker. But each one of these beatitudes always has a result. Right? Like when we looked at uh, poor in spirit, the result was, if you're poor in spirit, you shall inherit the kingdom. The result of being a peacemaker, Jesus says in verse 9, is that they shall be called sons of God. In short, sonship. Sonship. And I'll be very, very quick on this. Not because I want to, but some of this we've already talked about. Sonship. What does sonship mean? First thing it means is adoption. Right, we talked about this earlier, right? That not only are we no longer at war with God, but our status immediately changes. We go from being an enemy to a friend. We go from being orphaned to adopted. That we are adopted and grafted into Him. And what that means is that we have been pursued. Right? The theology of adoption means that we have been pursued. You can look at Ephesians 1 for this. That in love, God has pursued us. And as a result, once he's adopted us, it says in verse 13, I think that the Holy Spirit seals us. That we cannot be snatched out of his hands. That no one can snatch us out of his hands. That is adoption, that he has in love pursued us. And upon adopting us, he has sealed us. That is one thing that sonship means. Another thing that it means is that you've been given redemption. Redemption, that is the forgiveness of your sins. That is a new heart, renewed thinking. You have been redeemed. That the old you is no longer who you are, but who you are in Christ as a result of his righteousness. You have been redeemed by the righteousness of another. Not by your intellect or your work ethic or how much you've accomplished or how much you'd like to accomplish. You have been redeemed by the righteousness of another. And finally, it means inheritance. That sons and daughters will receive inheritance. First Peter talks about it. You can go there and check it out. What's that inheritance? That one day we will be in the presence of God eternally. Eternally. That is the inheritance that we receive. God giving us peace and grace as a result of the person and work of Jesus and his righteousness is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of the gospel. Practically, what that means for you and I, should you belong to Jesus, practically what that means is that from the beginning, God pursued and rescues and redeems his children. Join me in prayer. God, as we finish our time this morning, or the the preached word this morning, God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Those are two things that we uh, do not deserve at all uh, or ever, but yet you freely give them to us as a result of the righteousness of Jesus. 
So God, in this time, uh, my prayer is that through your Holy Spirit, not only would we be convicted, but that we would be led to worship Jesus loudly, that our hearts would experience transformation, that we would realize or recognize that we are peacemakers on behalf of the finished work of Jesus, that we are no longer at war with you, but instead we have a relationship with you. We have access to you. God, we thank you for this time of worship. And as we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, may this be a time of continued worship so that we would tangibly see the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, so that we would see that who we once were is not who we are now, and we live to expand your kingdom, we live to reflect your glory, and to not be tied down by other things. May this time uh, be a time of praise and worship and thankfulness. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.